everyone. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapil. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we will be discussing the TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, given by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in 2009. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Okay, well, uh, so the first, the first <laughs> item on the agenda, we, we tried to record this episode yesterday. And by tried, I mean Raymond recorded an episode yesterday. <laughs> well, and I well, well. <laughs> talked at him, uh, and it, my, I, I was not able to record my side, apparently, because I am in South Bend, Indiana, visiting Notre Dame University right now, and I was recording on my phone. And my phone, for some reason, did not record my side. So this is this is our redo. This is our yep. take two. See, she's she's in humanities, so uh, not in. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Attention, everyone! I this is I'm uh, opening up applications for a new co-host. Uh, anyone? <laughs> anyone who wants to apply? Uh, the only requirements are you don't make fun of me, and. You're nice to me, unlike unlike my current co-host. <laughs> Look, this is this is just the life of the humanities. Okay, <laughs> we are in it's the same true. boat here. Um, we really we, are. We are not. No, we are not in tech. So we we failed at that. Um, anyway, it's true. So this yeah. is take two. We're recording. We're having this the almost identical conversation over again. Well, we'll see if it's actually an identical conversation. We'll see if new things yeah, come it, up. It probably won't be. So, yeah. anyway. We'll see, we'll see. Okay. Um, so, the danger of a single story. Uh, first, to sort of explain what it is. So, it's a TED Talk uh, that was given in 2009 by a Nigerian author named Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. In the TED Talk, she gives a little bit of information about her life background, about her story. So really, there's not a whole lot of separate background or a summary that you need for the TED Talk because she kind of lays it all out there for you. She talks about how she grew up in Nigeria and that she, when she was a child, uh, read a lot of books that were American or British books. And those American and British books were about little white kids who had blue eyes and they played in the snow and they ate apples and did all these things that that white people do and she assumed that all books were like that um and she read uh all these stories that only had white people in them and she thought okay well that means that literature can only be about white people and so she was writing stories from a really early age but she was only writing stories about white people um all of her characters also had white skin and blue eyes and they played in the snow and they talked about how great it was that the sun had come out and they drank ginger beer, um, all of those things. And she, you know, she lives in Nigeria and she's like, we don't, we don't drink ginger beer. I don't know what ginger beer is. And the sun is always out and we don't play in the snow because there is no snow and we don't eat apples. We eat mangoes. And, but she's still writing these stories about people who are very unlike her. And then one day she comes across uh, books by African authors. And she goes, oh, you can write stories about um, people who are not, who are, who are like me. And at that point, she starts to write stories about her people um, and being Nigerian. And so she, she starts with that, that background of her life. And she proceeds to talk about when she, she goes to the United States. Um, in the United States, when she goes to school, her roommate is shocked that she knows how to speak English really well. Uh, she's shocked that um, Adichie knows how to use a stove. Uh, she has this idea in her head, the stereotype of what Nigerians are like. And Adichie sort of defies that stereotype and uh, her roommate has to learn what a Nigerian actually is like. So 
she takes all of these stories and puts them together, and her thesis, basically, is that it's powerful and important to have many different stories or many different perspectives on the world around you and the people around you, and that when you have just one story about them, like when she has one story of what books are like, or when her roommate has one story of what Nigeria is like, when you have just one story, then that's dangerous, that that's a bad thing. So we're going to talk a little bit later about what it means for a single story to be dangerous or whether we should employ that word specifically. But first of all, I want to start with the the very first words of the speech. So her first sentence, the first words out of her mouth when she starts this TED Talk are, I'm a storyteller. And she immediately follows that up with, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of a single story. So a couple things to unpack there. First of all, she, she doesn't say, here is my thesis, let me tell you my thesis. She starts very unassumingly saying, I'll, really all I'm doing is I'm just going to tell you a few personal stories. I'm just going to tell you some stories from my life, and it's about this concept that I call this the danger of a single story. But then also she opens with, saying, I'm a storyteller. She, she puts her, identifies herself as a storyteller. And throughout the speech, she really assumes that stories are important. She assumes the importance of stories. She, rather than making an argument for why it is important to have stories about people or about places, she assumes that that's important, but she warns against this danger of having just one story. You're always going to have stories, but you need to have many stories. Um, so given the fact that she kind of assumes that stories are important, that assumption is implicit in her speech. I want to kind of maybe unpack the implicit assumption and ask the question, what does she assume about the importance of stories? What does she think stories are for? And is she, you know, is she right? <laughs> so a couple things I think that are interesting or pertinent. Um, the first is, so both of us are English majors, and I think we've both been confronted with the existential problem of how you're going to make money as being an English major, and maybe mm -hmm. a, a broader cultural pressure that being an English major is not useful or something. The answer is you date a law student, <laughs> I would like to say. That I've is, discovered. That is an answer, yes. <laughs> um, but... Um, I heard someone who was, heard someone who was, who was an English major who was kind of giving advice to us undergrads about what to do. And one of the things that he said is that people don't pay for information anymore. They pay for stories. And why do they do that? The reason is, is because stories are the last bit of uh, uh, the last product that a computer can't make. And... Today, and especially in, like, modern mainstream media, there's a lot of talk about let's follow the facts, let's follow the science, blah, 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 when really we know that what's actually happening is let's follow the narrative. And I think that actually the interest or discourse on science is something that's falling out of fashion. And people appeal to science when really it's it's something entirely different that we're, a discussion that we're having ha having here, and people are valuing stories far more than they're valuing anything else. And so the idea of being a storyteller, being a storyteller, actually elevates you to a higher cultural position at this point than it than saying I'm I'm a scientist. Um, and that isn't to throw science under the bus because I, I don't want to throw science under the bus at all. In fact, I think we should probably resurrect science to a large degree. Um, but I think that I think that that we are kind of in a crisis of the soul and of the heart, which is the thing that's that's a little bit lost right now. So to to bring back the cultural authority of stories as I think something that everybody has a personal stake in. And we actually we think in stories far more in a far deeper way than people than we're we're really aware of. To the I mean, everything we say is a story. A sentence is a story. The basic building blocks of a sentence is a subject, verb, and object, which is a story. A subject that's the hero, the verb. The hero goes and does something, right? And the object, you know, the there's there's a unit of change that 
the subject was at one place and it's now at another place that is different. So there's a little story circle right there. That is actually the fundamental unit of meaning. That's what a story is, something that, that changes. And so you actually can't articulate anything, anything. You can't speak without speaking in some form or another as a storyteller. Yeah, well, actually, so I wrote my undergrad honors thesis on rhetorical ethics um, in the courtroom. So basically, the, the main qu central question of my thesis was, can you be a public defender? Can you be a public defense attorney and uh, morally justify that to yourself? <laughs> um, is that an ethical action to do? Because... Uh, when you're a public defender, then you frequently have to defend people who not only are probably guilty, but also may have confessed to you. So you might have to stand up in court and make an argument for why this person's innocent when actually you know that they're guilty because they, like, because they told you so. And for that thesis, I did research on two main communication theory people. Well, actually, one of them is less a communication theory person. But one of them is Walter Fisher, who introduced the, what's called the narrative paradigm into communication theory, I think back in the 70s or something. And Fisher, the, the work that Fisher did that was groundbreaking is he had this central idea that's so intuitive, but that wasn't something that people thought of before, which basically he said, okay, all of Western thought about communication is so focused on the dialectic, right? It's focused on, we have propositions and syllogisms and you make an argument and then if the argument is valid, then the conclusion is persuasive. And that's how people are persuaded and persuade one another. And so we think in terms of Plato's dialogues, that's how we come to a knowledge of truth. And Fisher says, that's like great theoretically, but that's actually not how people are persuaded. The way that people are persuaded is through what he calls good reasons. And the good reasons may or may not be logical. It may or may not come out to be a lot of valid syllogism. Good reasons can, uh, are most frequently found in the form of stories, which is why he says an anecdote is persuasive to us, even if uh, statistically it's not actually all that great. It's not all that helpful because it's a tiny little sample size. But to us, it constitutes a good reason. And good reasons are the things that persuade us. And good reasons are most often found in the form of stories. Um, if a story is a good reason to believe something, then... We believe it. Um, and because humans are storytelling animals, that's that's the way that we come to, to a knowledge of really anything, is we have to put it in the form of a story. We have to think in terms of stories. So that was the first figure. The second one is Alastair McIntyre. And Alastair McIntyre is this philosopher. I think I've talked about him on the podcast before. Uh, but he said something really similar, except that he talked about how all human action can be portrayed in the form of a story. So you, as a human being, have a telos, you have an end, something that you're aiming for, and that all actions that you take in your life are either bringing you closer to or further away from that telos. And that inherently makes your life into a narrative. It makes your life into a story. Because it's like in, you know, a, a fairy tale. It's like if you have a protagonist who their goal is to defeat a dragon, every action they take is either bringing them closer to defeating the dragon or further away. And that's what makes those actions meaningful. If there is no telos, if there is no end, then you're just doing random actions and it doesn't matter what they are and they don't string together into a narrative because they don't take you closer to or further away a certain end. So, all that being said about why stories are important, the fact that we are narrative people that stories and viewing our life as story makes our lives meaningful. I think that's implicit in her argument. And the other thing that's implicit is the fact that stories are for the purpose of telling the truth. Because when you tell a story about someone, the story better be true. <laughs> and it better give you more knowledge about that person and more knowledge that's accurate. If you tell a story about Nigeria, that story better be true. Because the idea is to have a better, fuller, more complete picture of what the world is like, and for that picture to be truthful. 
But the thing that she says that I think sort of goes beyond that in her thesis is she says that it's not just true that the story needs to be true, but more stories means more truth rather than just one story, that you can't tell the truth with just one story because it won't be the complete truth. Yeah, well, hmm. The... I mean, there's, I mean, then we get down to the, the question of like, what is truth and, you know, uh, what is, what's the difference between, let's say, telling a biography and, and telling fiction, mm-hmm. right? Um, because both of those, in both of those cases, you are, in fact, being selective about your story, especially if you're doing, you know, telling like a biography or something. Um even though, even if you are telling a biography and you are attempting to be factually accurate, you're still thinking, you're still utilizing the part of your brain that tells fiction because you're selecting bits of your story and you're trying to move it towards some kind of thesis about this is the point of my life, right. basically. But there is, but, but, but there is a difference between, between a biography and a piece of fiction Raskolnikov didn't exist, right? And mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt did. Um, <laughs> or whatever, like, you know, uh, Tom Sawyer or something. I think Tom, that, that's a great example because, you know, Mark Twain said Tom Sawyer is actually based off a real person, as many authors base their characters off real people, but he's actually mm-hmm. a combination of like three or four boys that he knew in his youth. And this is why this is like the question of actually the the gospels comes into play here, the veracity of the gospels because people like let's say Jordan Peterson will talk about this sort of dichotomy between true and truth, right? And he says, okay, you know, like the gospels are are deeper than true, so we shouldn't even if we ask the question of whether it really happened, that actually discusses stops the discussion. And I can see where he's coming from at that point. But okay, yes, but there is a difference between a biography of Theodore Roosevelt and Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer, you know, is Jesus just an amalgamation of all of the great people or is he an actual person? And the fact that mm-hmm. maybe there are storytelling aspects of the Gospels, um, that maybe the Gospel writers included certain things for literary purpose purposes— yeah. does not negate the fact or the question of whether he actually existed, right? Right. But there is a reason. There is, in fact, a reason why there's four versions of the Gospels and not just one. It's because it's written from four different perspectives. And the, maybe the reason why is that is to account for the fact that, the, that people remember things differently, that your memory mm-hmm. of something is not actually accurate. Um, and the reason is because you select certain things from your memory in order to reveal something that is relevant or important, and that thing is an element or or an aspect of the truth. Well, that's interesting because that seems like the it seems like the church fathers might agree that there's a danger in a single story because we have four gospels and not just one. We don't have just one single story about the life of Jesus. We have multiple. Right. Okay. Yes. So. Yeah, you can see that there. Um, and here's the thing, um, but here's the interesting thing about about the Gospels. So the Gospels, some of the things, they contradict each other. Things are claimed to happen in a certain chronological order that don't exactly happen in that order. Sometimes there are versions of things that Jesus said or did stated in one Gospel, not stated in another. And so you couldn't just like, it's very difficult to make a movie about Jesus that's, you know, objectively the best adaptation because are you going to look at it through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John's perspective? But I think that there is a difference here between the project of, of the Gospels um, and I would say maybe the, 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 current, the current attitude towards story of multiplicity or 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 moral pluralism in storytelling that Mm -hmm. tends to characterize the current zeitgeist of our time and i think the difference is that 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 even though these these different perspectives in the gospels 
that we value the importance of different perspectives, those different perspectives have a singular goal. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's probably the main difference. But when you look at this, this current rhetoric in today's culture about, well, we need to have multiple different stories, it's like, okay, yes, to what end? And it's really difficult for me to wrap my mind. I don't really see a specific end to this. Like, what's what are we what are we going towards? Well, actually, that I think takes us into another question, which is important. I think there are different viewpoints to it, and I'm curious to see what you have to say about it. So, Adichie seems to think, and she doesn't use this word, but this is what she's talking about. Uh, she seems to think that representation in storytelling is really important. And she starts off with an anecdote that I mentioned earlier that seems to make a lot of sense out of that perspective because she talks about how when she's young, she only writes stories about white kids and people who aren't like her because those are the stories that she reads about. She's just imitating the storytellers that she knows who are not Nigerian storytellers. And then when she finally reads what she calls African books, then those books actually tell stories about people who are like her and who look like her. And she has this epiphany where she's like, oh my gosh, I, I can write about me. Or not about me, but about people who are like me. I can write about my country. And she she describes that as, or she talks about how she reads African books. <clears throat> and she says that that saves her from the single story of what books are. So she seems to think that a lack of representation is a problem. And actually part of the reason to have many stories is so that there is representation. And on the one hand, that makes some sense to me because when I think about, like, I've, I've heard stories about um, young black children, for example, the first time that they see a black superhero, that that's meaningful to them and actually has a really positive psychological impact on them because I can see that if you're, if you're a young black child and you look at the world around you and everyone in authority is white, practically. Um, the president is white. Most people who are senators or representatives or whatever, most people in politics are white. Most people who make movies are white. Lots of actors in Hollywood are white. Um, lots of teachers that you see are white, especially teachers in better schools or higher paying schools. Uh, college professors tend to be white. Everyone you see in authority is white, and most of the superheroes that you see are white. And then so to see a black superhero... I can see how that psychologically would be effective, that you would be like, oh, I can do that too. I can be powerful and have agency and affect the world in really positive ways. Um, whereas you might psychologically think before, especially if you're young, that that's not possible, that only people who don't look like me are, are heroes who affect the world in a positive way. So in one sense, that makes sense to me. But also, can we take that too far? Can representation be problematic? Is lack of representation problematic? Uh, the speech opens up a lot of this question. So what do you think about that? So I think that Adichie is, is absolutely right in this sense. And this is the part that I really related to actually is when she actually, she started talking about like being shocked when she realizes that, you know, you can write stories about different things other than mm -hmm. the stories that I saw, because when I was growing up, we didn't watch a lot of movies. So the two main things that we watched were Superman, the Superman TV shows from the 1950s, because that's what I liked. And then Little House <laughs> on the Prairie, because that's what my sister liked. And so the first time that I watched a movie about that actually featured modern images or elements was because of Winn-Dixie. And I was <laughs> shocked because it's like, there's a four-door sedan, and it's like, what? You can do that? You can put that in a movie? I thought you could only have horse, either horse-drawn car carriages or, like, <laughs> cars from the 50s. I thought that was the only thing that was allowed to be in movies. And so it's like, a, you, could put, you, could, you could put a car in a movie that looks exactly like my car outside in the garage. And I was like, wow, what? Like, folding chairs? There's folding <laughs> chairs in this <laughs> I was like... I've never seen this before. And so I'm like, okay. Yeah, if this if if the goal here is to update our perceptions of the world, right? To tell more right. sophisticated stories about the things that we actually see, then I'm all for that. Representation, 
that's something a little bit more vague. And again, I'm, 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 I have questions about this idea of representation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly this idea that there needs to be some sort of like, it's more like just hitting, like, like hitting, getting points, you know, in a game or just like trying to, you know, get them all up there on the, on the screen or something. And mm-hmm. like when I watched the, the, the Star Wars, the new Star Wars movies, my, my, my first sense of this, I mean, it was a very postmodern masterpiece in this sense, because even the first one, first one, second one, third one, doesn't really matter. My, my, my impression of it, I don't know which one I got this impression from. It was probably the first one where I thought, I feel like I am watching an open mic. There's no, there's no point of this gathering. There's just an open mic where people just get up and shout their spoken word poetry. They, they scream their grievances <laughs> for two minutes and then they get down. And then someone gets, someone else gets up and screams their grievances for two minutes and gets down. And there's no plot. It's like, <laughs> all is the, the only point is for the, for the person to get up and represent. And then you, you cheer for them and then you get down. It's like, this is a football game or something. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excited about that. I, I took, I took an Asian liter an Asian American literature course when I was uh, in an undergrad and I'm half Asian from my mom's side and my dad grew up in Texas. Um, so I'm an Asian American, technically speaking, but I hated that class. And there, mm-hmm. I don't think there was a single book that I read in that class that I enjoyed. And technically speaking, this was supposed to be like my group. I was being represented in literature. Um, when when I, I read these stories and I realize that none of these people's experiences, they're interesting to me, but they're not, they don't represent me. I don't think they represent me in any deep sense. And part of that is because, you know, there are other aspects that are much more important to me than my 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 racial makeup, which is I mean interesting to me, but it's not the most important part of my experience. I mean, I was homeschooled. I grew up in a Christian family, and that probably makes my experience more idiosyncratic than the fact that I was you know Asian American, right? Um, and so, and for some, and so, and in fact, it's so idiosyncratic that I'm. I get to the point where I'm thinking, you know, I don't think there's any hope of my experience, so to speak, being represented in Hollywood. I might as well give that idea up. In fact, do I even really want Hollywood to come in and represent homeschoolers? They want to come in and like screw up. They're going to screw it up. They're not going to get it right. (laughs) The last thing I want is for Hollywood to come in and tell my story. And so, so I guess the thing about representation is, First of all, it's like, I don't think that your racial makeup is, should, that by your racial makeup, that that, that somehow, like, defines your experience. And I don't think right. that's even true of, of black people. I mean, it, 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 I mean, I guess there's, there's enough common experience that, you know, a certain story that celebrates or sheds a light on that experience can be true of a certain amount of black people. But that doesn't mean that that is the definition. That's the experience of all of all black people, or just just because there's an Asian on screen that that his story represents the story of all Asians. It's like, so I I don't know if just having rep just being represented or something, or just having your race represented is is really is really um, doing much. I mean, I think I think that's true when we when we reduce it to a question of how many races are being represented. Um, I don't know how helpful that is, although I mean, like the example I gave earlier, I think seeing people who look like you in important, good protagonist type roles, that seems kind of important to me. But also to, to push back on what you're saying a little bit, it does seem helpful to me for there to be stories about different kinds of people not limited to to racial background but your example of like christian homeschoolers um this isn't i don't know if i want you know like you said i don't know if i want hollywood to like try and write a story about christian homeschoolers because i don't think that would be actually good or accurate representation i think that that would be probably a dishonest story not an honest one but if 
I went and wrote a book. Well, maybe not me. Let's say someone went and wrote a book that was a novel about characters who happened to be Christian and homeschooled. Um, and that that story represented more accurately than maybe the stereotype of homeschoolers, what homeschooling is actually like, both the pros and the cons, the things you get out of it, and then maybe the things that you don't get out of it. Um, That doesn't seem like a bad thing to me, and that actually seems helpful, because I think that there are a lot of stereotypes and false beliefs about homeschooling, um, especially Christian homeschooling. And some of those stories are sometimes true, like sometimes it's true that homeschoolers are not well socialized and that they're they're awkward, um, but that's not always true, and telling more true stories about that kind of experience, uh, maybe not in the form of movies, but in the form of books or whatever, um, TED Talks, <laughs> I don't know, uh, more stories doesn't seem worse. To me, and I guess that's sort of a DGS point: is that having more stories about different kinds of experiences opens you up to the fact that there is more nuance than you maybe thought before. That you thought Christian homeschoolers were only one kind of thing, or you thought Asian Americans were only one kind of thing, and then you discover, oh my gosh, they can be both. <laughs> what? That's like wild and crazy thing. And that maybe the more that you see multiple stories and see how different identities and experiences intersect happen at the same time um the more that you're willing to believe uh that people's experiences are unique and that you shouldn't just assume things of people but that actually leads us into another question i have um which is something i mentioned earlier about the fact that she calls the single story dangerous she uses that word she says it's the danger of a single story she doesn't just say that the single story is like problematic or that it's incomplete um she calls it dangerous and so I want to focus on why why does she use the word dangerous because that seems a little bit maybe melodramatic or maybe not maybe it's maybe it's worthwhile to call it dangerous um and the quote in the speech that I think is probably my favorite quote or at least it's the quote that made me think the most when I watched this the first time and she says the single story creates stereotypes And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. So she seems to think, or she says, that stereotypes can be correct. It's not that they're wrong, it's that they're not a complete picture of the world. And she, in the speech, gives this anecdote about this uh, young boy who I think helps out around the house when when she's growing up. And the boy's name is Fide. And uh, Adichie's mother tells her all the time, like, when they're, when they're eating dinner um, and Adichie isn't, like, finishing her food, her mother says, uh, you need to finish your food. Don't you know that Fide's family has nothing? And you have... It's her equivalent of, like, their children starving in Africa. But they're in Africa. So it's, here's this other person who's worse off than you. Um, and so she only feels pity for Fide's family because she thinks of them as poor, and that's her whole story of them. And then she visits, or she meets his family one time, and there's this member of Fide's family who makes these really beautiful baskets. And she's just shocked that anyone in Fide's family would, like, make beautiful things, which is a little ridiculous, right? Because, of course, being poor doesn't have anything to do with your capacity to make beautiful things, but because her head is completely filled with one story about them, which is that they're poor, she she doesn't leave room for the fact that there are other stories to be told about them, like the fact that they can make beautiful works of art. So that, I think, combines a little bit with the question of why she says single stories are dangerous. That if you believe a stereotype, the stereotype might be true but it's not a full picture. It's not complete. And then that seems like it somehow connects back to the idea of stories as truth-telling, that we're using stories to get a full, complete picture of the world. And that having a full picture 
or at least the fullest picture you can possibly have, is important, and that you can't get a full picture with just one story about someone. Um, do we think that that thesis or that argument justifies using the term dangerous? Is she correct in going so far as to say that a single story is dangerous, or should she have used a different word? The idea of ideology being dangerous, I mean, I guess that doesn't really need a whole lot of justification because, I mean, you just have to look at, you know, the 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 ideological stories which dictated totalitarian dictatorships in the 20th century. So, I mean, so Nazism was one of them, but also communism was one of them. And I, I did a lot of research um not on communist Russia, actually, on, on communist China, which in some ways a lot of the similar things happened. So they're, they're comparable experiences. But a lot of the, one of the things that people talked about at that time of the danger of, of what happened was that, was, was that nobody could say anything that wasn't political. Like everything was a political statement. Pass the butter was political. Because... If it didn't fit into the narrative of, let's say, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, then it wasn't relevant. That was so that was a single story. And of course, that was and so any and also you couldn't say you were unhappy in communist China or or in, you know, communist Russia, for that matter, because if you were unhappy, that didn't fit into the narrative that the utopia was here and now. So it's like, yeah, absolutely. The single story can be dangerous. So, so yeah, that's true. I think that another thing that is worth pointing out, though, is that something that is a very useful weapon against the single story is, is laughter. In fact, that's exactly what Adichie uses, is actually. She uses a bit of a sense of humor. Um, but the fact that you can make fun of something, actually, I think, to a large degree is the is what is what um destroys the formidableness of that particular story um because if you can look at it from because that's looking at it from a different perspective and you know um and i think the moment you're able to 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 ridicule the the story or something um then then it no longer becomes threatening to you and you can see that analogy in Harry Potter, for example, when they're the Bogarts or something, the Bogart creatures, they come up and they represent your worst fears. And then the way the wizards defeat them is by casting the ridiculous spell. That is, make it into something that looks silly. And um, that's what comedians do. But that's also, I mean, because humor is a weapon, actually, in some sense. And that's why comedians are actually, they're, 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 they're really, uh, there's a lot of political discussions about what comedians should be allowed to say now or what they should be allowed to make fun of anymore. Because if they make fun of that, then that threatens threatens the narrative. Right. And I, I, there was a great piece, there's actually several pieces by The Onion, which I think um, are really are really useful, <laughs> funny for for this discussion. A couple headlines that come to mind. The first one um, is our wealth hurting Africa's feelings. <laughs> um, the other one, the U.S. <laughs> there is a story. The U.S. is shocked that Andorra is not in Africa. They like, <laughs> figured out that Andorra was just this wealthy European co country, and then they went back and tried to get their 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 money back that they had already spent it on expensive ski chalets. But they're like, mm -hmm. what? It was Andorra. It sounded right. It sounded like it was in Africa. So we just started sending the money because it was in Africa, you know, and they, they obviously needed money. And so, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, that that's satire. That's not a real story. I'm not spreading misinformation here. That was Good made job. up. It was a joke. <laughs> I think that to, to Adichie's point about the problem with stereotypes being not untrue but incomplete because I think part of the question is that we might think is, okay, well, why is it so important to have a complete... Like, if I can live my life and stay safe by believing stereotypes or by just kind of sticking with my single story, then, like, why is it important? Why do I need to know any story about someone who doesn't affect me, doesn't interact with my life? Um, if I think my narrative is true, why can't I just sort of fit everything into my narrative and accept the fact that 
like there are lies being told along the way and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if there are lies being told i think one example that speaks to that a little bit is the narrative surrounding um police shootings so if you okay let's say that you're talking to someone who's politically left-leaning so it's a leftist and you tell them a story and the story is just hey so a few days ago in south bend indiana there was a police officer a white police officer who shot a young black man and that's the only information you give them there's almost no details there right you can't actually figure out who's at fault or what's going on there if you tell that to to a leftist they're going to say assume automatically that the white police officer wasn't doing his job that he probably was racist that there was something going on there's systematic racism working and that he shouldn't have shot the young black man and that the black man was probably innocent or at least it wasn't justified to shoot him that's just going to be their assumption even though they don't have any details or any evidence to actually suggest that that's true and then on the flip side if you tell the same story to a conservative they're going to assume the best of the white police officer they're going to assume like he wasn't racist he was just trying to do his job um it was probably justified probably the black man was a criminal probably he uh, was threatening the police officer and so the police officer was just shooting in self-defense they're going to assume all these different things about what happened there and they assume all these different things because they have a narrative of how the world works um if you're a leftist police police officers are uh, dangerous and mostly racist and maybe it's not even their fault maybe it's just baked into the system but either way they are a certain kind of person um they're taught in a certain kind of way and that means that police shootings on the whole are un- unjustified but if you're conservative you think police officers are not racist they're doing their job um they only shoot you know they're trained well they only shoot when they're supposed to they only shoot when it's justified and that uh the young black man is probably statistically a criminal and so probably it's justified both of those points of view both of those assumptions about the world are bad <laughs> they're both a bad single stories to have because neither of them is true it's not true like if you assume that every single shooting is justified that's a lie. That's incorrect because of course there are shootings that are unjustified. And if you assume the opposite, if you assume that all police officers are terrible people or that they're all racist or that they're all trained badly, that's also a bad assumption. Um and it's not true. And so to hear a story about a specific police officer and a specific uh victim of a shooting and to say this person was justified and this person was not without knowing any evidence is slandering those specific people those individuals the man who died or the man who who did the shooting um and that's a bad thing because that's a lie <laughs> that's assuming something about the world that isn't true and i think it actually kind of goes back to utilitarianism um because if you have one narrative of the world probably the reason you have that one narrative is you think that that one narrative is the most helpful if you believe that narrative you're going to be right most of the time. Um like if you believe that white police officers generally are just doing their job, maybe there are some unjustified shootings. Probably that happens somewhere, but it doesn't really matter to you because you have one narrative of the world and that narrative is helpful. So if you just believe that one narrative and go on believing that one narrative, then every single story you assume that the police officer is in the right and you never have to deal with any problems. And there aren't that many problems to deal with the, in the first place. So it isn't that big a deal if we don't deal with them. Um they can go by and we assume our narrative about the world and everything is fine. But the weird thing, the weird belief that sort of baked into that belief is the belief that it's okay to believe a lie about someone. It's okay to tell a lie as long as it's a little lie and it contributes to your narrative. Um the little lies that get told along the way are unimportant. We don't need to know the whole truth. We just need to know enough of the truth to get done the things that we need to get done. 
So actually, it's interesting because this was this was a problem. This this was something that you were talking about in our episode about Twenty One Pilots. Uh, can you create the world? Can you tell a lie? That was yeah. the question that you asked, and was mm-hmm. okay. But but what's the lie? Is the, the service of making the world a better place is the lie? And, and like in the, in that case, in that sense, it's like at that point, do you want to call it a lie? And so this is right. what, w- words are slippery things. Um, but I think this is really, really what it comes down to is um, they because because you're selecting certain aspects of the story in order to in the service of some kind of thesis or idea that you're also neglecting other aspects of reality, which you have mm-hmm. decided are not important. And it turns out that it, uh, n- everybody does that to some extent, you know, Ch- Ch- Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie does that you know to to some degree mm-hmm. and so the question is what's the criteria how do we decide and i think that that's the really the crossroads that we're at right now and i think and so there there's a huge discussion of course that's going on particularly in literature right now mm-hmm. that is what are we supposed to do with the western canon and the 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 main accusation in academia that's leveled against the Western canon is that it's composed largely, entirely of dwims, dead white European men, and that we need to get rid of them. We need to deconstruct it because that's that's it's constructed by a certain racial group that's designed entirely to protect that racial group. And I think that well that that is that is one story. It's like okay, that's that's one story. Fair enough. But it's one story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's 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 some fair accusations that are come against the Western canon because it's like, okay, um, how do we actually decide what constitutes, let's say, the great book, the great books, or what makes something a great book, or what makes something worthy of being published and put on a megaphone and put on a platform? above everything else. And I don't think it's I don't think in the case of the Western canon that it's that it's dwims uh primarily um and you can look at that because what's really interesting about the western canon is we have something we have like we have russian literature russian is it russia is in asia and dostoevsky was writing in russia not english um that that i mean is that is that really is that white specifically i mean it's certainly not british it's a very different perspective of things so why did that get accepted into the Western canon? And I guess, I guess if um, some, the people, a lot of people would say, well, you know, it's because they they have white they have white skin, so that's why they got accepted in. But I don't know if that's I don't know if that's right. Um, and there's a book by this author, Vishal Bangawadi a great book that just was recently published. I think it was back in 20, 2017 or something called the book that made your world. And I thought this was a, it was a really interesting book, but his thesis is he's, he's from India and he uh, was, uh, he got his education um, from an Indian university. And one of the things that, he discussed, he became a Christian, and one of the things that he talked about in regards to uh, Britain and Britain's colonization of India um, is that he says that India India was unable to advance to or, or develop their, their culture, and it wasn't because they were an inferior culture um, to the British. The British were able, or the you know Europe or the West had developed their culture to a very large extent, whereas cultures like India weren't able to. And he says the reason is not it has anything to do with the inferiority or something of that particular race, but because the West was predicated on the Bible, mm-hmm. and that that has nothing that has nothing to do with racialness, the, with the racial makeup. It's the cultural authority of everything that was written was measured against how well it actually articulated the truths of the Bible at that present moment in time. And so he does this with every single aspect of society. He goes with like literature, science, 
um, liberty, uh, politics, heroism, revolution, languages. And I'm taking a couple cues here from his chapter on literature, since that's relevant here. He quotes mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot says, The Bible has had a literary influence upon English literature, not because it has been considered as literature, but because it has been considered as the report of the word of God. And the fact that men of letters now discuss it as literature probably indicates the end of its literary influence. And then later here, Western writers since the 1960s have found meaning in their racial or ethnic traditions, in the praxis of the various feminisms, in the con customs of sexual identity groups, and in the traditions of their geographic regions. While these writers have located many important centers of cultural activity and identity, few have been willing to take the next step in asserting that their personal center could solve the West's malaise in general. They assume that we as human beings cannot locate any source of meaning outside our local identity groups, that there is no source of transcendent authority from which to call the, for broad social and institutional reform. Without a Trinitarian God, the postmodern writers are left with little choice but to immerse themselves in the moment in an attempt to forget their very real need for transcendence. In their perpetual search, search for personal soul, they exacerbated the West's loss of its collective soul. And so I guess one concluding thought I have to that is something that really I think bothers me about um, a lot of the current cultural discourse now is people used to talk about like people of color that was that's what we we tend to say but nowadays it's switched to bodies of color it's like that's what they're calling it now and it's like really bodies of color this is where it becomes all about the representation and and not about what you say i think that's where it's important to understand because i think adichie is saying something fundamentally true about stories and about the single story and about many stories, but that you could definitely interpret it, like that you can use it in different sorts of ways, that you could use it, you could watch this TED talk and be like, this is so great, representation is really important, we need to have all kinds of races represented in Hollywood, and that's the main thing you take out of it. Whereas, I think maybe the deeper meaning, the meaning that's more important, is the fact that many stories gives you a fuller picture of the truth that actually has more to do with truth telling than it has to do with just getting the right bodies of the right color <laughs> on the screen mm -hmm. or in the right places at the right time. Um, and in relation to take this to uh, Christianity a little bit, a little more specifically than we've been talking about. Um, one thing that I think is helpful when we talk about truth telling, because obviously the truth and discovering the truth, knowing the truth, is really important uh, in, in the context of Christianity. The idea that a story sets you free, that a story can be true, that a story is telling the truth. Um, but we may not think of that always in terms of a single story versus many stories. And sometimes Christians, I think, have a tendency to get dogmatic to say, well, I know that this proposition is true and this proposition is true and anything that falls outside of what I think is true um, can't possibly be true. And that comes, I think, from a kind of pride, a uh, feeling that you, you fully understand the mind of God, that you know the plan, that you know everything that there is to know about the way that God works, which obviously isn't true <laughs> for anybody. And then you, you stop trying to learn more stories. You stop trying to hear people's experiences because you think you have it all figured out. You think you know absolutely everything. But I think that maybe a more full picture or a more full, more full understanding of what God is really like is that the mind of God is infinite, that you're never going to know everything about God. You're never going to know everything about the world that he made because it is infinitely complex and there are infinite stories <laughs> contained within it and that it's good to try and learn more about that. It's good to hear more stories because all of those stories, as long as they're true, are telling you something about the mind of God. They're giving you a fuller picture of the mind of God. And I think an, a writer, a Christian writer, who gave us a really good idea of what that looks like is G.K. Chesterton. Um, in his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, 
he it's about a police detective who goes undercover in this council of anarchists because he's trying to root out all the anarchists and he slowly discovers that all the other anarchists are also police detectives who are also there to do the exact same thing that he's doing and they're all there in the end um and they're all trying to defeat the head of the council who's a man named Sunday and as there's this really interesting abstract chase scene where they're chasing after Sunday. And Gabriel Syme, who's the protagonist, starts noticing that whenever they're behind Sunday, whenever they're following him from behind and they see him from the back, he looks terrifying. He looks like the villain they've made him out to be. But every time he turns around and they see his face, Syme starts to think that he looks, like, happy, that he's cheerful, that he's not a villain at all. He's just playing with them, that this is all just a game. Um... And he starts to be a little bit confused and disturbed by this duality that when he looks at Sunday from two different perspectives, he sees something different about him. And that's where Syme says the, the quote that is my favorite quote in the book. He says, Shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Cannot you see that everything is stooping and hiding a face? If we could only get round in front. And then he gets interrupted, so you don't actually find out what he thinks will happen if we just get round in front. Uh, but I think what he's getting at is the world is complicated and everything is hiding a face. That the mind of God has more secrets in it than we can ever know in one human lifetime. Um... And I think that maybe Adichie's way of getting round in front of seeing the fullest picture that we can possibly see of the truth is by opening up our minds, by rejecting dogmatism, by rejecting ideology, and being open to hearing stories and experiences that contradict the single story that we have. And that's really the only way to constantly grow in our knowledge of the truth and really in our knowledge of God. I think that the that the compatibility of, let's say, maybe relativism or cultural relativism or cultural pluralism and a Christian way of conceptualizing or viewing the world is that I think that there's an idea, the Greek word for witness is actually martyr, martyrion, I think is what it is. Mm -hmm. So martyr actually means witness. And the point, I think, one of the things that Christianity continually emphasizes is, is that every is that the story must be told from different perspectives. Um, and so that, I mean, so there's a little bit of a paradoxical thing going on here because it is one story, and yet at the same time, it's it's multiple stories. Um, and so the idea of the witness. The, of the idea of the martyr is, I think today we tend to think a martyr, well, we think of someone who kills, for, who, who who's killed for their faith or something. But a martyr can mean something more than that, at least in the original sense. A martyr is someone who sees, who sees the truth from a certain perspective. And so in some sense, everybody's calling is to be a martyr, a, to be a witness to something. Um. And I guess here's uh, so here's a I guess sort of a closing thought that I had with with well the way Adichie ends it. Adichie ends her talk by saying, "When we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise." So she's appealing to a return to paradise. That there is a lost paradise, lost, and maybe we can maybe paradise can be regained. So it's interesting that she's using kind of a religious language to articulate her vision for what she wants the world to end up being, and that it's a and that it is a place. Paradise is a place. Um, but there's two trees in the Garden of Paradise. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. So if you go back to paradise and you just eat the same tree over again, the knowledge of good and evil, then we we just get sent back out again um so i it's hard for me to to come to a very clear conclusion of like okay we just need more stories 
like what do you mean just we just gain more knowledge more knowledge are we eating are we eating from the tree of knowledge what's the tree that we're eating from essentially when we gain more stories i think we should gain more stories but it's like at to what end what's our telos is it the tree of knowledge or is are we going back to eat from the tree of life and the tree of life is a multifaceted thing but it is it is one thing mm-hmm. so I think that having multiple perspectives isn't useful unless we have some kind of common value. And we hope, God forbid, that this common value is something that is entirely anchored into some sort of particular cultural locus or place or geographic location, because we want something that is transcendently true. Yeah, that having multiple stories isn't the whole solution but that it's part of it. Yeah. Because the ultimate yeah. goal is truth. Well, thanks thanks for having that conversation. It actually ended up being not the same as the first one, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Well, that's the danger <laughs> of a single recording. So. <laughs> uh, well, thanks thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see, see you next time. Yep, yep. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokapil and Sophie Klomperens. And our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing William Shakespeare's play Othello. Until then, friends, never forget the danger of a single podcast recording. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more